Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, threats to the press in America. Attacks on the media have been a sort of perennial subject for CJR and is something we have looked at a lot over the last couple of years. It seems, though, over the last week, we've had a string of Twitter attacks from the president, which has been typical, but they've been accompanied by the mailing of pipe bombs to CNN and a attack on a synagogue in Pittsburgh, which Trump visited, but he also accompanied that visit with more attacks on the media. And it feels to me like we've sort of hit a new level of concern. Yesterday's visit to Pittsburgh was about coming together as a nation to comfort and to heal. I came home, turned on the news, and watched as the far-left media once again used tragedy to sow anger and division. I think it deserves some attention to ask whether the existential threat to journalism is something new and deeper and something that we really ought to be fundamentally worried about. I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but I have brought in two people who can help us think through it. I'm lucky to be working at Columbia, where there are people like Michael Shudson and Todd Gitlin in the building, both professors of journalism, both experts on the history of journalism and the history of threats against journalism. Todd, let me start with you. You wrote a piece for CJR earlier this week about Trump's continued use of uh, of his pulpit. You were focused on the coverage of the caravan. But can you address first this bigger issue of like how scared should we be in terms of threats, threats to the fundamental freedoms of the press in the U.S.? Well, we're facing something unprecedented because uh, presidents have lied before and they've gotten angry at the press and Nixon and his vice president, Agnew, adopted a stance of hostility to the press. Attack, sort of glaring and booing at reporters is not something that just came in. At Trump rallies, it was a feature of the Republican Convention of 1964, which nominated Barry Goldwater. Uh, But what is new is that there's now a feedback loop that converts the president and the right-wing media into an apparatus that's mutually ensnaring, (laughs) mutually useful. So Trump picks up cues from Fox News and some of his privileged uh, bullies, uh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and others. And he uh, uh, then puts the memes from those attacks out into the public, and then reporters, journalists react, and that in turn becomes another occasion for Trump to blast them as enemies of the people and so on. So So, we have something closer to a state apparatus than we did before. Yeah, we're we're recording this on Halloween, and so you're saying it's like the threats are coming from inside the house. (laughs) <laughs> the threats are coming from inside the House, without question. And, and the way the media covers Trump, you think? The me- there's a, a tightly connected positive feedback loop. We know it has a lot to do with what, fo- what Trump has just watched on Fox and Friends, and that he then amplifies. And the amplification, in turn, makes news, which in turn generates more opportunities for him to find uh, occasions for to inflame the press, to dare them, serve him, uh, and so it goes. Uh, it's very hard to see how to interrupt this cycle, but it's it is something unprecedented, I believe, in in in, in American history. Wow! So that's really interesting because you're you're basically saying what's what's so different and so threatening about the situation is the Im- 
involvement of the press itself in amplifying the threats in, as much as as much as the original threats themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. Of the Trump supporting. Well, press not just his press. I mean, you you've argued in CJR and elsewhere that it's not just the right wing press that it, the mainstream press also amplifies in 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 sort of unprofessional or at least inadvisable ways. Well, that's true. You know, it's true. Also, CNN has very close attention to various features of the caravan. Uh, other net, other networks have done so also, but there's a there's there remains a difference between the way CNN does it or uh, the PBS NewsHour on the one hand, and the way Fox News does it. Fox, Fox is acting self consciously as a megaphone to uh, arouse the Trump voters to find new ways of protecting America from immigrants. Crusading reporters are feeding the narrative that anyone opposed to welcoming these caravanners into our country are cruel, horrible, awful, rotten people. The media's over-the-top slurs against those of us who believe that our border has to be protected, it speaks volumes about their bias and their real motivation. Michael, how do you frame this question of how serious this moment is? For the press, well, I try to think about the last president who seriously attacked the the press on a regular basis, which was uh, Richard Nixon. N- not that most presidents have ever had much love for uh, the press, but there there's an other hand to this, though, and that is that this is still um, in the Trump case in the in the realm of um, rhetoric, probably um, damaging. Uh, rhetoric, but Nixon, in some ways, went further. He used the executive agencies to harass the press. Uh, he he sicked the IRS on individual journalists um, who suddenly found their tax returns were being checked out. He um, uh, urged the Federal Communications Commission to um, take a closer look at the Washington Post's um, ownership of television stations. In the short run, that didn't do much, and and uh, eventually he had a very short run. But over time, that kind of use of executive agencies can be, as as a president appoints more of his own people to those agencies, that's the kind of actions that are, A, illegitimate, um, and B, can be very effective. So far as I know, not where Trump has gone yet. There, there are a set of norms that have uh, developed in the last 75 years or so between the president and the press. You're supposed to hold news conferences. You're supposed to have interviews with um, journalists who you may or may not care for. Um, Trump still does that, but he's done it, doing less and less of it. Um, now that he has this new medium, um, Twitter to speak directly to the public and get it covered. He doesn't have to deal uh, so much with reporters in the flesh, although he still does. You know, there was um, this whole question of the line between the rhetoric, and you're right that, I mean, it's, you know, what he's done is primarily called reporters' names and called their news organizations' names. But there was, there was a very active debate this week about how how directly can you draw the linkage between the things that he says and the things that people do? The guy who 
mail pipe bombs um, to CNN and to a bunch of Democratic leaders clearly soaked in what Trump said. So Trump's language resonated with him, and he took that language and translated it into putting explosive devices in the mail. So, and, you know, when journalists pointed that out this week, they got a lot of pushback from Trump and his supporters saying, how dare you sort of say that we caused what was clearly a sort of mentally unstable person to do this terrible thing, which is mail these bombs out. Like, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do that for him. He just misinterpreted what we said. And so how directly do we draw that linkage? You know, we can talk about what we think about it ideologically, but just as journalists, how do we think about the correlation between the two? So I take it that there are in the United States today probably something like a million people who are psychically on the edge and disposed toward where do you so, get that number? I'm making it up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there are I mean, there are 200 plus million uh-huh. Americans, uh, adults. Uh huh. Okay. So I'm saying half, half of one percent. Uh-huh. Um, seat of the pants estimate. I mean, I'm not a, an epidemiologist. Mike, what do you think of that? Illness, You're a sociologist. I, uh, I am a sociologist. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't have I don't have numbers. Maybe on it's that. a million. Maybe it's half a million. Maybe it's a two lot million. of people. I mean, it's a, a some. Lot, it's I, a I large. It's a that. number with uh-huh. a lot of zeros. Okay. Okay. And um, now these people are poised to find enemies. And now they have this apparatus, which is a sort of 24-7 enemy supply. And uh, so clearly they're picking up uh, phrases from uh, Trump land. So, for example, the Bowers the, uh, who committed the massacre in Pittsburgh, uh, the Association of Jews and Immigrants, is some, has been a trope of the right-wing media. So mm-hmm. George Soros is paying for all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, what is the responsibility? Uh, is, is there a, a sense in which the president now can, uh, has a way of addressing a crowded theater and cries fire? Uh, doesn't it follow uh, logically doesn't it follow statistically? A certain number of these people, maybe they'll only be one at a time. Maybe they'll be one a month. Maybe they'll be one a week. They'll come and go in clumps. But this is inflammatory stuff that he's pumping out and he and his expediters are pumping out. I think to wash your hands of it and say, well, I never said pick up your machine gun and go kill those Jews. So some of those potential um, pipe bombers um, are were pranksters. Uh, so I, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands they are, but they're out there. And the best you can say about um, uh, President Trump's rhetoric at this time is that it's it's morally irresponsible. It's that That's the nicest thing you can say about right, it. But that's a separate question to whether what kind of threat it poses to the press in a democratic society, right? Um, it's not entirely separate, um, it seems to me. That is, uh, he's not pulling the trigger, but he's he knows there are people out there who are willing to or deranged enough to do so. Mm. And he's made it clear from the beginning during the campaign that he knew who was hearing him. Do you remember the moment when he was saying something about Hillary Clinton 
It was a rally somewhere in the South, I think. And he said something about her and lock her up and so on. And then he said something like this. Um, I mean, he's always whispering offstage or blaring. He has to know what he's doing. He, there has to be shrewdness, not just mania in it. To say, oh, I didn't uh, push the button is uh, indecent. So this, I think, naturally leads us to the question of how do we treat his incendiary language? Is it the obligation of reporters to sort of um, say we have to protect these people from this and not amplify it, especially if he's saying the same thing over and over again? Or do we have to pause and examine it um, and say, this is coming from the president. Here's what it is. Here's what it could do. Here is why he shouldn't be saying it. But that fact amplifies it itself. I think you have to notice it if you're the press. If the president says something, I think that's news. Uh, But you also have to intervene as a custodian of accurate assessment and say, this is dangerous. This is a dog whistle or a whole pack of dogs howling. I mean, so there's a way of reporting that somebody said something and at the same time reporting that it's false. And I think actually our press has gotten quite good at that sort of thing. I mean, the Times had a wonderful piece the other day, apropos the caravan, of showing various ways in which uh, photoshopping and splicing and fabrication of different kinds were distorting the reports of what was going on in the caravan. They certainly needed to report the caravan. That's a big story, so thousands of people want to trek here. Uh, but you, there are other ways of reporting that, of course, than the way Fox News quote-unquote reported it. Mm. You know, when, again, when we started talking about this, it, it this grows very quickly from how do we think about threats to the press to how do we think about threats to our democracy and the democratic system. Um, and again, I think that I, I do think that informs some of the coverage because if you if you believe that the you know a, a sort of critical foundation of the United States is under attack and is in peril, then you you probably treat your reporting or approach your reporting differently than if you think this is just a guy who's sort of off and and loves attention and and is a narcissist, um, right? I think we're in a very dangerous situation when there's a substantial population that believes, in part because the president tells them to believe, that what the mainstream news media are saying is fake news, meaning he doesn't like it. We have now something like 30 or 40 percent of the population, I think, that's in that uh, bag. Their distrust of the news media began before Trump and actually... The Gallup poll show us that the huge slump in trust in the media took place between 2007 and 2008. It was reaction, I think, to the financial crisis. Uh, and not, by the way, just a criticism of the media because they didn't properly report the financial crisis coming, although that would have been legitimate. But it, I think the financial crisis triggered a it was a sort of it made the journalism serve as a proxy for all the institutions that were failing. So Trump accentuates this sense of disbelief, and it is the professional obligation of journalists to be oppositional, not in the sense of using 
nasty names at Trump. That's childish. Um, but in the sense that pointing out the discrepancy between the line coming out of the White House and reality as journalists can discern it is part of the job. I think uh, there, there are several issues here. One, the other branch of government that passes on legislation is Republican, um, House and Senate. That's why this election is very important. There is no congressional check um, on the actions the president takes. Um, there is a judicial check still. So he can't change the basis for citizenship uh, on his own, although he's claiming to be able to do so. Um, but there's a lot he can do on his own, and and he's been doing that. He can raise or lower tariffs without uh, without checks on that power. I don't feel uh, that uh, he's listening to anyone around him who might have a more principled objection to such a thing, um, if it pleases his ego or his his um, drive for power. He might just try it. So. I, I've become intrigued over the last week or so by comparisons to, uh, at least as, re as it relates to um, the press and to the sort of threat to democratic norms, to the 1960s um, in terms of where we are now. What do you see the parallels between like 1968 and this moment in terms of the sort of fraying of some of these systems that we're talking about? So 1968 was a terrible year for America, but it was actually in some ways a very good year for journalism because the major news organizations had decided to believe their own correspondence over Pentagon propagandists and were reporting that, in fact, the war in Vietnam was failing of the American mission. And that was a very important crowbar to open up um, American discussion played a huge part. At the same time, the news media were being attacked, and in some ways not unfairly, by Nixon and his vice president Agnew for inflaming cleavages or polarization in the society, which was largely racial, as they saw it. Uh, and it was true that the news media had fastened upon the most theatrical, most melodramatic, and most incendiary uh, leaders of black organizations and held them to be typical and decisive. And at a time when there were quite a number of riots or rebellions taking place in cities and a lot of panicky reaction on the part of largely white Americans was, was in, the, in the works, you know, there was a, a, a mood that was disposed to curb the press, I will put it that way. It, th this was also the time when Nixon, uh, probably correctly, uh, was calling attention to what he called the silent majority, mm -hmm. middle-class white Americans who uh, were in the background. They were not being focused on by the media, although I learned recently in 1969, Time's so-called Man of the Year was the was the middle American man and woman. So, so the, the mainstream media seems to keep uh, rediscovering that there's a world of Americans that they don't have at the front of their mind most of the time. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to 
overlay the results of next week's midterms with uh, a map of news deserts in the country and look at sort of how what the, what the correlation is. Sounds like a good job it for CJR. Sounds like a CJR. I can see the graphic now. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an amazing uh, and fascinating conversation that we're going to have to continue another time. Thank you both for joining me. Um, Thank you. Thank you. A programming note from CJR. Next week, we launch our latest print issue, which is devoted to the subject of race. And next week's podcast is going to be um, from the conference that we're having at Columbia on Monday. It'll be a conversation between Jelani Cobb and Olivia Polgreen. Um, So look forward to that. And thank you for joining us.